Hey, I wonder, what's the best meal that you've ever eaten in your entire life? Can you picture it? You're like, oh man, I've got so many, I don't even know how to choose which one would be the best. So maybe I'm not going to ask you to think of the best meal you've ever had, but I'll ask you to think of some of the best meals. Maybe some of the best dinners or lunches or breakfast, if you're a breakfast person, some of the best meals that you have ever had. What did you eat? Do you know? Do you remember? Do you remember part of what made the meal so good was the fact that you had a giant steak that had a huge vein of fat on it? Oh, that is my favorite meal, you guys. And if you don't like steak fat, you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. Hey, where were you? Do you remember where it was? You, you might be able to picture the restaurant. You probably know the city you were in. I mean, you know which kitchen you were gathered around. When you think about the best meal that you've ever had, you can probably picture where you were. And I also wonder who was with you at the table at that time. There were probably people that you knew and liked and you enjoyed spending time with, and that's part of what made the meal so fantastic, right? Now, I want you to come back, stop daydreaming about food, okay? I'm going to get you out in time for lunch. Don't worry about that, okay? Um, this morning, though, uh, I was thinking about that question, what makes a great meal and what are the best meals that I've ever had? Amber and I were actually talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and there are a few that stick out in my mind. For the first one, um, it was my 30th uh, birthday. And Amber threw a surprise party for me. It's the only surprise party as far as I know that I've ever had. It was at the best steakhouse I've ever been to in my entire life. They served steak with a giant vein of fat in the middle. It was phenomenal. And there were about 30 of my absolute favorite people around. I mean, that's part of what made it so great. A another great meal that I had was when I was in Costa Rica on a mission trip several years ago. And there was a woman there that um, absolutely insisted that she cooked dinner for our entire team, despite the fact that she only made, like she made less than $1,000 a year. I mean, she didn't have a lot of money, but she insisted that she was going to cook dinner for every single one of us. And it, it meant so much that she was willing to do that, right? I mean, you probably have these memories of dinners that you've had or meals that you've had. They just stick with you. And in nearly every case, Every time you can remember a meal and you say, oh, that was a great one, it's because there was good food, you were surrounded by loved ones, and you were celebrating something. There was some special occasion that you were marking. Now, I bring all that up because this morning, we're actually going to eat a meal together at the end of the service. And this meal that we're going to have really may be the most meaningful meal that you've ever eaten. I'll tell you up front, it is not the biggest meal you've ever had. It's not going to be the fanciest. There's no steak fat, unfortunately. It's not going to be the most impressive lunch that you've ever had. But here's good news. It won't cost you anything, so that's always good. Anytime you get a free meal, it's automatically a pretty good meal, right? It's not going to cost you anything, but I will say it's a very valuable meal. It's free to you, but it wasn't free in the first place. This meal that we're going to eat together, it's so intimate. It's so powerful that we in the church actually call it communion. And communion is simply a word that means, um, it means to have a close moment with somebody, to have a time of intimacy with somebody. 
And so we're going to celebrate this moment together. We're going to take a meal that is going to offer us a moment of intimacy. Can we go back one slide? Thanks so much. It's going to offer us a moment of intimacy with God and with one another. So here's the cool part. If you have felt distant from God lately, for whatever reason, and maybe it's like you've always felt that way or it's just a recent sort of thing that you've been struggling through, this meal This little bit of food that we're about to eat together this morning, it actually has the power to help you connect with God, maybe in a way that you haven't ever done before, that it's going to be that special, that powerful. Despite the fact that we're doing something we've done thousands of times in our life. I did some quick math just because I was curious. I've had about 50,000 meals in my life. I'm 38 years old, and so I've had about 50,000 meals. And the ones that stand out are the ones that have good food, loved ones, celebration. And the meal we're going to eat this morning, actually, it, it includes all three of those things. Because this meal, you guys, it's not just about satisfying your hunger, like you got a rumble in the tummy and you need to, to eat something before you get hangry. Anybody get hangry? Nope, just me? Okay. Um, it's not about satisfying hunger, physical hunger. It's about satisfying something deeper. It's about meeting a need that maybe you didn't even realize you had or you were never able to quite put into words what you were feeling. And this little snack that we're going to have this morning, it really does have the power to satisfy something deep inside of you that perhaps you've never experienced before. So we're going to take communion at the end of the message together. It's going to be a a really, really special moment together, an opportunity for you to connect with God. And, And when we do this, we're actually following the example that Jesus set for us in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's um, recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, each of the stories that tell the, the life of Jesus. And in every single one of these stories, there is a moment where Jesus has this meal with his disciples, his closest friends, his followers. And so when we take this meal, we're actually going to be following in the same footsteps as what we'll read here in Luke chapter number 22. So I'll invite you, if you want to read along with us, you can turn in a Bible if you have one with you. If you don't, all the words are going to be on the screen so you can follow along with us there. And I'll point out that this nifty, colorful little Bible that I'm preaching from this morning is available for free out at our guest center. So if you don't have a Bible and you want one, you're like, I've always wanted to have one, but I was too scared to go to the bookstore and buy one because people would think I was a weirdo, you know, religious weirdo. Um, You could just go get one for free. You don't even have to pay for it. Just go to the guest center today before you leave and say, I'd like a Bible, and we will give you one, and it's a great one. It's a great one to get started reading with. In Luke chapter number 22, the scripture tells us this. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived. When the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his followers, he sent them ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Then in verse 14, the Bible tells us, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus was about 33 years old at this point. He had been teaching and ministering publicly for about three years. And he knows that before the next week is complete, he's going to die. And even though that's where his life is leading, that's what's going to immediately follow this meal that he's going to share. He tells the disciples, I've been very eager to eat it with you. 
Then he took a cup of wine in verse 17, and the Bible says he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. He said, it's an agreement that is confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. In this scene that Jesus shares, the meal that he has with his disciples, we see the three elements I already mentioned that make any meal uh, meaningful. We see good food, we see loved ones gathered around a table together, and the celebration of something truly important. So we're going to kind of use that outline to help explain what this meal means and why you would even eat it this morning in church in a movie theater where normally, you know, you just eat candy and, you know, popcorn and things like that. Why would you choose to eat this meal this morning? I think looking at it through these three lenses of good food, great people, and a worthy celebration will help it to make a little bit of sense, all right? So we see in this story here that the meal, the the supper, communion, the Lord's Supper is really good food. It is good food. Now, if you've ever taken the Lord's Supper before, probably the last thing you would use to describe it is good food. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? If you've had communion before, you understand what I mean. If you've never taken communion in a church and you, you, know, you take it this morning, you're going to be like, I remember the first time I ever had communion, I was 17 years old, and I had gone to a church, and they were talking about the Lord's Supper, and I was really hungry, I was hangry, and I was looking forward to eating. I was so excited. And then they served it to me, and I was like, uh, this is not tasty, this is not delicious, you guys said this was good food, I don't get it. It's a stale wafer and Costco grape juice, you guys, you're not fooling me, this is not special. I was thinking to myself, this isn't even a supper, it's a snack. That's all it is, you know, it's just a little bite and nothing more. I I was thinking Jesus needed a better chef, or I was thinking, honestly, it's a good thing I can't rate this church on Yelp because I'd give them one star, like they didn't even feed me well, you know? I struggled the first time I took communion, the first time I had the Lord's Supper, because it didn't seem to me to be very good food. But over time, I came to realize that it was good food. And you know that good food isn't solely determined by taste alone, right? I mean, you can have a good meal and it still not be the tastiest meal ever. You could have the tastiest meal you've ever eaten and it not be a good meal if you're with somebody you can't stand or you get terrible news or something like that. So a meal can be good even if it isn't the tastiest of all time. The reason that I loved that, that dinner that I had in Costa Rica with that woman I mentioned, it wasn't because it was the best or most flavorful food I ever had. It was because it meant something deep when she gave from the little she had so that I could share a meal around the table with her. Maybe if you have kids, you understand what I'm talking about. Maybe your kids have cooked you breakfast on a Saturday morning before, you know, and they bring it in on a plate and the bacon's totally burnt and the eggs are way salty. It's not tasty food, but it's good food, isn't it? Because the meal points to something bigger. It's not just about the elements of the meal themselves. It is about the meaning behind the meal. 
So listen, when Christians, when we gather together to eat the Lord's Supper and we eat bread and juice, we call it good food, not because we don't know what good food is. We call it good food because the meal that we're going to take together this morning is bigger than just bread and juice. It's bigger. It's more meaningful than just the elements that you're going to eat. We know that bread and juice is not gourmet food, okay? We understand that. Although I could totally imagine some hipster in Vancouver starting an organic bread and wine restaurant and people just flocking to it. I mean, I could see that happening. We understand that this Lord's Supper, this meal that we're going to eat together, that it isn't the the tastiest food, but boy, is it good food. It is good food. It's good for your soul. It is going to satisfy uh, an appetite, a desire inside of you that honestly no other food on the planet is capable of doing. Because according to Jesus in the passage that I just read for you, the elements, the bread and the juice that we're about to take, they actually represent the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And the teaching of the Bible is kind of strange. If you're new to church, you're gonna hear what I'm about to say and it's gonna strike you as very funny and you're like, all right, I was kind of thinking this place might be a cult and now I'm sure of it, okay? Because this teaching of the Bible is that when we consume the bread and the juice, in some spiritual sense, we are actually identifying with and partaking in the death of Jesus. Do you understand that? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was, you know, weird and we're cannibals and we're actually eating the body of Jesus. If you take his words at face value, and some churches do, I mean, maybe you went to a church as a kid or in the past and they told you, this is the literal body of Jesus and this is the literal blood of Jesus. And you're like, this is weird. Um, I don't think that's the way that Christ intended us to take his words. These are symbols. This is metaphor. This is poetry. When we take the bread, when we drink the juice, we are reminding ourselves of such an important event that happened 2,000 years ago, the death of Christ. Now, if you don't understand that we are taking this as a, as a ceremony, as a memorial, then you can get really confused with Jesus' teachings. I'm going to put a passage up here on the screen. And if you just read it and you don't understand that he's talking metaphorically, you are going to be a little freaked out. Let's put it up here. We'll read it together. John chapter number six, it's verses 47 through 55. And I want you to notice this idea that Jesus is communicating that his bread and his wine, his body and his blood are good food, not literal food, not just tasty food, but they are good for your soul. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the what? the bread of life. He says, your ancestors ate bread in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever and uh, will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people who were listening to him did what every one of us would have done. They were like, say what? The people began arguing with each other. And they said, how does he mean this? I mean, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Again, this is metaphor, guys. He's not a vampire. He's not a weirdo. I'm just telling you. This is poetry. He's communicating something that we're going to partake in in just a moment. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life. 
within you. But anyone who will eat my flesh and who will drink my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food. It is true food. It is good food. It'll satisfy in a way that nothing else can. And my blood is true drink. It has the capacity to do for you what nothing else can. See, the point that Jesus is making here is that we have all of these appetites in our lives. We have an appetite for adventure and an appetite for love and an appetite for food and an appetite for passion and meaning and, you know, all of these different things. And we pursue all of those appetites in our lives. We try to satisfy them constantly with different things. So the the weird cycle that we get caught in, however, is that although we can temporarily satisfy our appetites, we can never finally and fully satisfy our appetites. So we eat and we get full and happy and then we get hungry and hangry. It's a cycle that will repeat itself every single day that you are alive. We drink And we get real happy on Friday night, and then we get hungover on Saturday. It's like this cycle where we have an appetite that we can temporarily make better, but we can't fully and finally satisfy. We buy bigger and better things, don't we? Like we buy a bigger house, and we're so excited about the bigger house until several years goes by, and we're like, this house is not so big anymore. I need a new house, a a new iPhone, a shinier this or a better that. We have these appetites that we try to satisfy, And we can for a short amount of time, but it always seems like we're chasing the next thing that's going to make us happy. We're chasing the next thing that's going to leave us satisfied and content in life. And you know as well as I do, nobody ever gets there. Nobody. Us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, we're all chasing after something to satisfy some appetite inside of us and we're never quite able to do it. Maybe that's because the things that we're chasing after were never designed to fully and finally satisfy us. Maybe food is supposed to be a gift that's received gratefully, and we're supposed to enjoy it. It's pleasurable. Maybe we're supposed to drink some wine and enjoy that. Maybe we're supposed to have nice things and enjoy them, but never make those good gifts into the ultimate gifts. You see, this meal that we're going to take here in a moment, it is good food. It is satisfying to your soul. You have satisfied your body in times past. You have satisfied your mind. But short of this meal that we'll eat together this morning, your soul won't be satisfied. And so it is truly good food. It reminds us that Jesus can satisfy our desires the way that nothing else ever will. Good food. Second part of this meal, the thing that makes it so wonderful and special to us is that we're surrounded by loved ones when we eat it. Listen, even extreme introverts, those of you guys that are like, just know I'm a loner, I don't like talking to people, I'm going to hang out in the corner of the room, please don't invite me to your party because I'm going to hate every second of it. Even those of you guys that are extreme introverts, if you were to tell us about the best meals that you've ever had, they will include 
people that you like. Now, it's a small group probably in your case, but all of us realize that meals are better when you eat them with people that you care about. I was reminded of this even last night. I went to a wedding for one of our members who got married, and at the reception, I got to sit at a table with some of my favorite couples in the church, and it was a wonderful meal, not because it was the tastiest food ever, but because I really got to enjoy the company that I spent it in. In Luke 22 here, Jesus says to the disciples, despite what this meal is going to lead to, he says to the disciples, I'm so excited to eat this dinner with you guys. I've been eagerly anticipating sharing this meal with you. Why? Partially because of the people that were gathered around the table. I mean, almost nothing in life is better than sitting down at a table with people that you love. And God actually placed that desire within you for relationships, for community, to be surrounded by people that you care for and who care for you. God gave you that desire. So when we gather around the Lord's table together, we're not doing it as individuals, we're doing it as family. We're doing it as community, as loved ones together. Did you know there are no examples in the Bible of somebody taking solo communion? None. Every time somebody eats the Lord's Supper, it is always in fellowship and relationship surrounded by people that they love. It's like a family gathering around the dinner table. Now listen, this is so critical because I just saw a study this week that broke my heart. And in this study that was just done last year, The researchers found out that one-third of all of Canadians feel persistently lonely in their life. One-third of you guys, one-third of your neighborhood, one-third of your office, one-third of our country feels persistently alone. Not just occasionally, we all feel alone occasionally, but like every day, feel like they're alone, they're not known, They're unsure if they're loved or if maybe even they would be missed if they weren't here. And that's why the Lord's Supper, this meal that we're going to take together, it's so meaningful, particularly to those of you guys who are feeling lonely today. Because around Jesus' table, there are all these people that are gathered together, people of different ages and genders and languages and people who enjoy different hobbies and people of different financial status and people of different spiritual maturity and folks from Airdrie and people from Calgary. It's like all of a sudden, we eat this simple meal together and the Spirit reminds us that we are never alone that we are gathered together with our friends and our family at Jesus' table. Did you know the Bible says in Psalm chapter 68, verse 6, that God places the lonely in families? He places the lonely in families. If you are feeling lonely, if you're feeling unknown, if you're feeling unappreciated, if you're feeling distant both from the people around you and from God, this simple meal has the power to make you feel connected to bring you back into relationship, and to satisfy this need inside of you. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, these people are not my family. I don't know them. This is my first time here. I've never had a conversation with them. I understand that. I really do. Stick around for a while, though, and they'll start to feel like family. Join a connect group. You'll find family really fast. You'll find people that are actually quite enjoyable, people you like to share your life with. 
I'll go a step further. Just do me a favor. Look around the auditorium. Look up, look down, turn around, look behind you for a sec. Just humor me, would you? Look right, look left, look behind you. It is entirely possible that the most important relationship in your life is in this room and you just haven't discovered it yet. It is possible that when you just swept your eyes across the room, you passed your new BFF. You passed your future husband. You just didn't know it yet. That is the power that happens, that's made available when we gather together, particularly around the table, because nobody is ever alone. And that's one of the central things that this meal reminds us of. What unites us in Jesus is greater than what divides us in the world. No matter who you are, no matter what your life looks like, I want you to know that you can find family in a place like Connect. So there's good food. I mean, really good, satisfying food. There's loved ones, lovely people that if you got to know them, they could become the most important relationships in your life. And of course, there's celebration. I told you every great meal is a celebration of something significant. The best meal you ever had was probably on your birthday, or it was on your anniversary, or it was a part of the best vacation that you ever took in your life. A good meal can happen anytime, but a great meal is almost always tied to celebrating something special. And of course, the Lord's Supper, it commemorates the most important event in human history. I mean, listen, your birthday is really important, okay? It really is. I love celebrating it. Maybe you know somebody, and birthday is the most important holiday of the year for them. They have birthday month, you know? It is like a huge celebration. Our birthdays are so important. They're fun to celebrate. But my goodness, they're not more important than this holiday. They're not more important than the day that Jesus offered himself for each one of us on the cross. And so the reason that Christians for thousands of years have eaten this simple meal together is because we are commemorating this important event, the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for my sins and my mistakes. If you really want to understand why we do this and what's the big hubbub about it, you can trace it back to two words that Jesus uses in the verse that I mentioned or I read to you a moment ago. I wonder if you caught those two words. He said it a couple of times in the passage. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you, for you, for me, for us, for them. The death of Jesus was for us. It was for us. You see, Jesus wasn't just like a martyr who got caught up in some circumstances he couldn't control. He wasn't a martyr who died for a a cause that he believed in. Jesus was a savior who died to rescue the world he loved. He didn't just die as some past historical event, but he died for you and for me. Because you know deep down inside, the world actually needs somebody to rescue it, doesn't it? I mean, you've sensed this before. Our world is full of goodness and it's full of brokenness. We live in this tension. Your life is full of joy and your life is full of sorrow. You catch glimpses of the way the world is supposed to be, but they're fleeting. And before you know it, they're gone. 
and they're marred by something dark. And something deep inside of you says, oh, this isn't the way things are supposed to be, is it? This isn't the way the world is supposed to look. I'll just tell you what the Bible teaches. You can disagree with me. I don't care. You, you may come from a totally different spiritual perspective or worldview, and that's totally cool. I'm going to show you what the Bible says in this, and then you can choose to do with that information what you like. Here's what the scripture says. The darkness, the brokenness, even the evil that we see in our world is something called sin. And sin's not a popular word in our world today. We don't really like that word. We tend to bristle at it. We try to minimize it. We try not to talk about it a whole lot. But actually, the scripture says the problem deep down inside of our society and the problem deep down inside of my soul is sin. Sin is simply what the world looks like when God doesn't get his way. When the world or, or our lives and relationships don't look the way that God intended. That's all sin is. See, God has always intended for you and for your marriage and your family and your job and our world. He's always intended for us to flourish. He's always wanted us to find life. And instead, we live in a world that's marred by sin. And sin causes chaos and it even causes death. So sin is this word that describes the fact that we know the world is sort of good, but not good. It's like we know there's something better, and yet we can't quite accomplish it on our own. And if we're honest, we're all guilty of this sin to some varying degree. Like, listen, I may be a pastor, but I'm not perfect. I yell at my wife sometimes. I take things that don't belong to me. I shout obscenities at cars when they cut me off. I mean, I'm working on it, you guys. But you know, like, I'm not any better than anybody else. I'm just as guilty for the problems in the world as anybody else. You see? To some varying degree, we're all responsible for the darkness, the sin that's in the world. So listen, every time you think to yourself, oh, that's not the way things should be. She shouldn't be suffering like that. That's not right. Oh, I shouldn't have responded the way that I did. I shouldn't have said those things or done that thing. Oh, it's such a tragedy. That's awful. I can't believe that happened. Every single time that that thought enters your mind, you know what you're doing? You're validating what the scripture says about sin. You're saying there is some standard that we know we should be living up to and we're constantly failing. We know there's something better, there's something more that should be true in our world and yet none of us are able to bring it about. And so Jesus says he dies for you, for me. Because of the darkness that I've kind of brought into the world, Jesus offered himself to make that right. You see, most religions, other worldviews, even the non-religions will tell you, it is your job to fix the darkness that you bring into the world. You need to follow these commandments, and you need to give this money, and you need to volunteer here and try to be a good person so you can make up for the sin in the world. But Christianity is unique. It is unlike any other belief system. It is unlike any other religion because Christianity says the evil that we've kind of wrought in the world is so vast. It's so deep. It is so ingrained into our world now. The only person who could make it right is God himself. 
He's the only one that could overcome the evil, the sin that each one of us have brought in our lives. And so God chose to do something about it. Rather than saying, you guys screwed it up, you better fix it. He said, no, I'm going to come to your rescue. I'm going to come and I'm going to help you. And so 2,000 years ago, we believe that God entered the world in the person of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't a religious philosopher, but he was actually God in the flesh. And at the end of his life, Jesus hung on a Roman cross. And he hung on a Roman cross, again, not just because he got swept up in events he couldn't control, but he hung on a cross for you, for me. And that in that last moment, God actually experienced and took onto himself all of our sin, all the evil, all the brokenness, all the wrong that you and I have ever done, rather than saying, Kim, it is your job to fix this, rather than saying, Dan, I've been keeping a list, I'm checking it twice, when you get to the pearly gates, your good better outweigh your bad, rather than doing that. The scripture says that God took the very worst that each of us had to offer. On the cross, he took all of our violence, took all of our hatred. He took all of our evil, all of our suffering, all of our jealousy, all of our greed, all of our hopelessness and despair. He took it on himself and he died. That isn't where the story ends, is it? Because not only did he take on all of our evil, and suffer the ultimate consequence for it, dying. The scripture tells us that three days after Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. And the reason that he rose from the dead is so that he could communicate to you and to me that God can overcome our evil with his goodness. That you don't have to be hopeless. You can have hope in Christ. That you don't have to go through life unsatisfied and unfulfilled and uncertain about what your purpose is, but that by rising from the dead after absorbing the very worst of who we are, you can be free. You can be healed. You can be set on a new path. It's not about being a good person. It is about being a rescued person. It is about being delivered and saved by Jesus. Listen to what the scripture says in John chapter number one, verse five. It says, there is darkness in the world, but there's light in the world. The darkness does not understand the light, but thank God the darkness can never extinguish the light. There is nothing that you will go through in your life that cannot be redeemed, healed, reconciled, restored, and made whole through Jesus. So when we eat This bread and this juice, this simple little meal together, every time Christians do it for thousands of years, we are retelling this cosmic story in which God has the ultimate victory. The weight of the world is not on your shoulders. You don't have to make your life right. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I need to be rescued, and you will be. Hey, there is good food. I mean, something that'll satisfy your soul in this little meal. There are people that love you and want to get to know you at this table. When we eat together, it's not just ceremony. It's not just some rite of passage that we do and forget all about. It is something that has the power to satisfy you. 